Call for Action presents Of Consuming Interest, a public service show that discusses scams, deceptive offers, and other consumer concerns. Here's the director of WJLA 7 Call for Action and your host, Shirley Rooker. Well, we've got a lot to cover today. For one thing, we're going to talk about saving money on the ways that you can use your uh, savings accounts at the tax end of the tax year. There's a lot of things that you probably don't know. I learned some interesting things. We're also going to talk about some of the myths of Social Security and things that you may get a surprise out of some of this. And we're going to take a look at long-term care insurance and whether or not it's something that you might need or want. My guest today is Joe Hemsley. He is a private wealth advisor with Ameriprise. Joe, welcome to A Consuming Interest. Shirley, thanks so much. It's great to be back on the show. Well, this is good information that we have today, and I, I think it's it's very timely. We're looking towards the end of the, the tax year. And so let's just start off with what the first thing that I talked about, which is are the tax-advantaged accounts. And there are some things that people really need to know to save some money on their end-of-year taxes. So right now, what are we going to start with? Yeah, Shirley, so this is a great time of year to consider what's gone on during the year for someone with regard to their taxes and make sure that they avoid some of the common mistakes that that, uh, people sometimes overlook. Uh, So one one thing and one example, and not all of these are related to end of year, but it's still a good time to kind of look to to work on that, Um, is there's different types of retirement plans that folks can save into that have different characteristics. And traditionally, folks put money in retirement plans, 401ks and the like, to defer taxes until retirement. But there are other choices as well. Roth 401ks and Roth IRAs have been around a while. And the monies in those grow tax-free. So the idea is to really be very intentional, intentional about where you place the monies and try to diversify if you can. So one kind of mistake people make is just to default to traditional types of accounts and not think through the diversification. Okay, now let me ask you this. Should you have money in different accounts? I mean, how would you advise somebody who's, let's say, a a young person in the early parts of their career, and they're starting investing in these accounts, and, and I hope they are. At any rate, it's a smart thing to do. Uh, how are they going to look at, should they put more money in one? Should they put more money in another? And as you've indicated, there are tax ramifications. So how do you divide up what you're going to be able to save between these different accounts? Or is it smart to just do one account? Well, that's the thing. I think it's smart to have monies that grow tax deferred, some monies that grow tax free, and some monies that are actually taxable on an ongoing basis. Um, the taxable monies are monies you can get to before retirement with less difficulty. So it's helpful to have that. And the tax deferred means you're lowering your tax bill as you place dollars into those. And the tax free means you may have a lower tax bill over the entire arc of that account. So you want to diversify. So a younger person 
should eventually try to build all three types onto their balance sheet. In terms that of makes sense. Yeah, in terms of sequencing which goes first and so forth, it would really be situation specific for them. But the, the idea is to not just default to one type, but to have total tax diversification on your balance sheet. Yeah, that makes sense, especially the the account, the type of account where you can actually access the funds. I assume, assume there will be some penalty, but it's probably less horrendous than it would be if you had to access the others. And if you have a really huge uh, disaster occur in your life and you can't ever foretell what's going to be around the corner. So this would give the, the consumer the access to this money in times of emergency. That's right. It's not all about taxes. You know, there's other characteristics that mm -hmm. um, one would want to have and have those diversified too. So accessibility, marketability, liquidity, you know, th these are things better achieved when the monies are outside of retirement accounts. Okay, let me ask you a question. Let's suppose that I'm in my 40s and I'm looking to a long career and I'm healthy, etc. And I'm putting money in this account. Um, where I can uh, get the greatest tax advantages, but I'm also doing the third type that we just talked about that you can access. It, are there points in your career where you might want to shift from one type to the other? And can you transfer funds from one of these accounts to the other? So that's a great question. So I think of it in two parts. You know, one is adding new money. That's one way to shift. So if you're heavied up on one strategy, and time goes by and you have new resources coming in, you could simply add more to one of these other uh, types and even it out that way. In terms of moving from one to the other, yes, there's, there are ways you can do that. There's, for example, something called a Roth conversion where you move money from a traditional IRA or 401k over to a Roth IRA or 401k. You pay taxes as you do that but then when it arrives in the Roth, thereafter it grows tax-free. So that type of, um, you know, that type of consideration usually is still one that you would consider um, really um, later in life. You wouldn't mm -hmm. necessarily do something like that in your 40s. So I think in your 30s and 40s, even 50s, it's more about, because you're probably still accumulating resources at that point, it's, it's still more about evening it out through addition than it is through change. Yeah, that makes imminent sense. Yes. Well, there's a bunch of other stuff here that you talk about, um, like selling some of the assets before the one year mark. What What is the advice that you would give people there? Holding it longer is better. Yeah, it's just, yeah. so the, the tax treatment when you sell a capital asset like a you know, a stock, a bond, um, even a, you know, a house, a uh, piece of artwork, whatever it might be. But if you wait more than a year, you receive capital gains treatment, long-term capital gains treatment, typically. If, every once in a while, someone will be tempted to or actually execute on selling something before 12 months is up. That's subject to taxes at a different rate and a different type. Short-term capital gains, which is defined as less than 12 months, is the same as ordinary income. And ordinary income rates are higher than capital gains. So that's just one of those things you just want to double check before you Gotta sell take. something that you have owned it. 
well, you need to you need to consult. Right? Yeah, you need to consult with your advisor at this point to get the best advice and what you're what you're about to do. You know, I can't believe it, but we need to take a short break here, Joe, uh, and let our listeners know they're tuned into of consuming interest. My guest is Joe Hemsley. He is a uh, private wealth advisor with Ameriprise, and we're discussing things you need to know. There are a number of other things there, Joe, that I don't think we're going to have time to cover during, about savings tax advantage, but consumers can go to your website and get this. Is that correct? Would you tell them how to find it? Sure. If someone wishes to, they can type in Ameriprise and my name, Joseph Hemsley, and just by searching for Joseph Hemsley, H-E-M, as M is Mike, as is in Sam, L-E-Y, Joseph Hemsley, and an Ameriprise, they'll go straight to my website. Because there's a lot of information that you have there that things that people might not even think about. Simple, some of them are very simple, and others are a little bit more complex, but that's what we need to know. So it's very good, very good information. But I want to touch on the other subjects as well. And one of the debates about Social Security is when should you start taking Social Security? There's all kinds of conversations about taking it early, taking it late, and and uh, so on. So what are the, the the things that go into the decision for any individual who's about to retire and start their Social Security? How do they figure what is the most, the best time for that person to start Social Security? Because it's not just cut and dry, is it? No, not at all. And it's a great, great question. And really, it's the primary question with Social Security you know, from the individual's perspective. When should I start it? So, and, and you ask a great question in terms of what are the, what are the factors that go into that? So, you know, there's a few things, right? There, but I think the main one is always, do you need it at that time? So if you're, you know, if you're still working, you may not need it. So that's a factor. If you stopped working, you may need it more. That's a factor. Um, how do we define need? Because you could use other assets you may have and delay receiving it. But that's how I define needing it. What, once you start having to sell down bank accounts or asset accounts um, to live on because your employment income is completed or reduced, um, then at that point you know that you need it to, you need money to make ends meet beyond your employment income. So at that point, it's usually, it's good to start thinking seriously about starting Social Security and worry a little bit less about trying to maximize the benefit of it. Because if you're selling off assets uh, to live on and you're foregoing Social Security payments that you could be receiving, you're sort of losing both ways. You're losing the opportunity cost on those assets, the future growth on those assets, and you're ensuring that over the course of your life you're going to receive fewer Social Security payments. So really, it comes down to need. Now, health could be a factor. Um, if someone's health is not perfect, you might want to start it a little earlier to make sure that you receive um, you know, a certain number of payments before maybe someday if your life expectancy is a little shorter. Um, and, and because people should, yeah. uh, people should understand, Social Security does not transfer to your family. 
In other words, when you die, that's it. That's right. Now, if you're married and you're the and you predecease your spouse, um, then there could be uh, uh, a change there where if your spouse is also receiving Social Security or would, but your benefit is higher than theirs is or will be, then they have the option of beginning to receive yours and foregoing theirs. Okay, so, so there um, are some, there's yeah. wiggle room there in terms of what happens. All right, I didn't understand mm -hmm. that. Thank you. Sure. Okay. Yeah, within, so, within spouses, there's, there's that wiggle room. And to your earlier point, though, um, far fewer choices when it goes to the next generation. It usually right. just ends at that point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, so a lot of factors to consider when you're thinking about taking it, but there's also concern from people. Is Social Security going to be there when I retire? Is it? Can you answer that? Where's your crystal ball, Joe? <laughs> so there's no doubt that Social Security is um, in is not in the best of shape because of how it's been used over the decades relative to its original design. However, you know, it seems the likelihood that it, there would be an abrupt, significant change to it is probably pretty low. Um, so, yeah, um, there's likely to be changes to the system that uh, may change the types of benefits folks eventually receive, but will it still be there? In some form, highly likely, yes. So, highly, um, likely, yeah. highly likely, we we have something to look forward to. Um, okay. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, that, what that's that a, something is, it's less clear. <laughs> yeah, but now, do they keep up with inflation? I mean, we're experiencing rather, well, rather record highs in inflation right now. What is that doing to Social Security? Yeah, so the Social Security has generally made adjustments in combination with or in relation to cost of living as measured by the government. So, for the yeah, so the, the Social Security has quote unquote kept up with inflation heretofore, um, and that'll be another aspect that conceivably could change uh, over the next several decades if the system itself is in need of major repair. That, you know, that could be one area that is less um, useful to the, to the recipient than it has been up until this point. We had a very large increase in Social Security a couple of years ago when inflation uh, was was so high. This this last adjustment was 3.2 percent going into the next year. Uh, that that's more of a normal type adjustment. Um, so yes, it's been adjusting for Social Security. Will it always? We'll have to see. Yeah, that, nothing is absolutely certain. Okay, and the website again, please, Joe, for information because you've got a lot of valuable information on there. Sure. Thanks, Shirley. So, yeah, it, it's it's basically if you type in Joseph Hemsley and Ameriprise, it'll go to my website. My actual website's kind of a long, it, it's, it's Ameriprise.com slash Joseph Hemsley. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so if you type in any combination of those words, it, it'll pop up in a search bar. Okay. And there is some good information, like, for example, don't depend on Social Security as your main source of retirement income. So anyway, well, let's just take a brief pause here to let our listeners know they're tuned into Of Consuming Interest. My guest is Joe Hemsley. He is a private wealth advisor with Ameriprise, and we're talking about some of the factors that affect your pocketbook. Um, now, let's go on, Joe. I, I hate to leave Social Security because it's so important to so many people, but there's also some another issue that I want to just touch on, and that is, do you need long-term care insurance? Um, at Call for Action, we've had people complaining that it doesn't meet their needs, that it wasn't what they were told, et cetera, et cetera. And yet others are using it and finding it extremely beneficial when they're in a time of need. So give us a bit of an overview of what do we mean by long-term care insurance? Sure, sure. So insurance companies um, have determined over time that there's a market for providing help when folks need at-home care type assistance or assisted living and an assisted living facility where their health is okay, but they just need a helping hand more regularly, all the way to being in a nursing home or a full care facility where someone needs um, around the clock type care. So there's different levels of care and insurance companies have said, look, we'll set up programs uh, where we'll provide benefits for those types of care. Um, and, and that's what it's all about. And, and you, you touched on, people can have different experiences with this. Um, and I've seen- it Depends on whether they read the fine print, Joe, with, you know, the big print gives and the fine print takes away, is what I like to say. That, that's right, that's right, it's well said. So some, you know, some companies, there's more fine print than others. You know, so it, there's a whole process there where there's a lot of companies competing for the business. So it's a matter of taking advantage of that, and but also shopping and making sure that you do know what's in the fine print and that the companies have a good track record of actually paying out on claims that they don't put up too many hurdles uh, and that you know what you're getting into. Because, yes, there's some companies that are, are you know, much less user-friendly than others. Yeah, we 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 know about that. But uh, I would say to consumers that they need to do a lot of research before, because you're not going to know how good this is until you need it. And that's why I think the fine print is can be so deadly for people, because they don't read the fine print. They don't really understand it. Um, are there, um, I guess each state has an insurance commission, where could you consumer go and get see if there are complaints about the company? Yes, that's right. That's exactly right. So we, um, there's an insurance commissioner in effect um, in each in each jurisdiction in each state, and I do believe they would have um, information on mm-hmm. uh, issues that have arisen with regard to particular insurance companies. Claims um, that have been filed. Well, I, I would hope that consumers uh, would have access to complaints, and, and of course we know you have to you have to balance the complaints too because some people complain no matter what but you have to evaluate what they are and figure out how important they are in terms 
of what you're looking for. But also, I find that it's interesting just to go online and put in the name of a company and put in complaints and reviews. And mm -hmm. always read everything, though, with a, with a little bit of a jaundiced eye because they may be true and they may not be true. So that's where your professionals come in, Joe. Uh, is that something that you yeah, all do? With, yeah. Is that something we, you we all do? Folks, yeah. It is. We help folks shop. Um, and yeah, the, the, those types of issues are, are one of the many categories that we filter through and try to identify uh, what may be the best choices for a particular person, a particular client. Um, you know, but there's, there's many other factors as well in terms of cho choosing a provider. Uh, but yeah, the, if somebody, if a firm is having significant complaints um, towards them, then that's certainly eye-opening. Um, fortunately, we haven't had too much of that with the companies we've used over the years. Yeah, and also you want to make sure that the company is financially strong is going to be there to provide you when you're maybe 20, 30 years down the road. And I don't know how you really factor that in because we never know what's going to happen. But I guess, you know, other other options, of course, are for people to set up a savings program on their own. Um, and, but of course, that, you know, can you save enough money to cover what your your needs might be? So it it's really is a balancing act, isn't it, for consumers? Oh, it is by all means. So yes, the strength of it, the strength of the company is is in paramount, um, and wanting to see that that's been the case for a long time. Because as you say, a lot of times these types of coverages are acquired 30 years before they may actually be used. So it's important to know that the, the companies have been stable for a while uh, as a factor. Um, and then it, com it comes back to, again, you know, how much coverage is needed. And that really is specific to that family, that, that, that person mm -hmm. or couple, in terms of how else would they pay for it. Um, and it's, a, it's one of the more um, sophisticated and complicated aspects of financial planning, because there's a lot of moving parts to it. Yeah, uh, and a lot of people I, found that out the hard way. Mm hmm Yes. Yeah. Where they, yeah, I, I get asked that question a lot when, you know, mom or dad is 85, 90, 95, and they might need some help at that point. I get asked that question a lot by, you know, their, their, their son, daughter, niece, nephew, loved one. Um, hey, do they have long-term care insurance? Mm -hmm. and, um, there's usually a sense of relief when the answer is yes. Uh, and then it goes to, okay, let's talk about the details. How is it set up? What does it provide? And, and uh, is the place down the street that um, you know, mom or dad is interested in being at, is it eligible for, for, those, uh, for that policy? Oh, you know, I hadn't so, thought yeah, about that. That's the owl. That's right. Yeah. You've got to consider whether or not they will accept this policy. How in the world are you going to figure that out 30 years in advance? Because you all do, well, I know it is said yeah. that the premiums are much lower if you start early in buying this kind of insurance. But uh, yeah, that's a real tricky question. Look, we're, we're out of time. I can't believe it, Joe. It's passed so fast. It's just flown away. Thank you so much for such an informative uh, interview here today. My guest has been Joe Hensley. He is a private wealth advisor with Ameriprise. And you've been listening to a call of consuming interest. 
right here on the Federal News Rec Network. I'm Shirley Rooker. You can reach me at Shirley at callforaction.org. And we thank you for being with us. Of Consuming Interest is a public service program presented by WJLA 7 Call for Action, hosted by Shirley Rooker. Call for Action is an international nonprofit network of hotlines which offer free and confidential assistance. If you have a complaint, contact Call for Action at 301-652-HELP. That's 301-652-HELP.